Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club program. My name is Maya Jasanoff, Coolidge Professor of History at Harvard University, and your moderator for this evening. The club would like to thank the Ken and Jackie Broad Family Fund for generously supporting tonight's program. As the club continues to host virtual events, they are also grateful for the continued support of their members and donors. Visit commonwealthclub.org to learn more about membership or support the club right now with a tax-deductible gift by clicking the blue donate button on your screen. It's my pleasure to welcome Neil Ferguson, Millbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and author of Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. Neil is one of the world's most renowned historians and an award-winning filmmaker. In addition to writing a regular column for Bloomberg Opinion, he's the founder and managing director of Greenmantle LLC. Neil's book, Doom, offers a deeper understanding of why humans haven't gotten better at handling disasters and what we urgently need to learn to avoid the next crisis. Neil, welcome. Great to be with you, Maya. It's great to be in conversation with you. And uh, let me first say that this book is a huge amount of fun, uh, especially for a book entitled Doom. And fun is not really the first thing that one might associate with Doom. But what makes it so fun is the incredible uh, sort of range of events and modalities and methods that you draw on to give us really a deep historical context for understanding the present catastrophe that we are all living through. And I wanted to start by asking you, um, sort of beginning at the end, as it were, asking you to tell us a little bit about how you went from living in the early moments of this pandemic in 2020 to thinking about the much bigger picture. This is a book that actually started life as a PowerPoint slide deck. Tell us a little more about that. Well, I do feel slightly self-conscious talking about doom on Zoom in the gloom, because as you can probably see, I'm in a fantastically badly lit room. That the, There is a, a kind of uh, levity, perhaps some people will consider it, inappropriate about the book. And I'm glad you, you spotted that in many ways, that the title is ironical. Didn't quite begin, if I'm absolutely honest, as a PowerPoint deck in the sense that I'd spent a lot of 2019 thinking about the history of, of disasters, and in particular, dystopias. And that section at the end that thinks about the history of the future, which is a kind of digest of my favorite science fiction going all the way back to Mary Shelley, was really what I began with. I was thinking a lot in 2019 about the history of the future and ways in which we've imagined or bright people who write science fiction have imagined the end, the end time, uh, Armageddon, the apocalypse. And so that was the beginning of the book. And, and then January came along and I was traveling as I used to do a lot. I was in East Asia, uh, in Taipei, Singapore and Hong Kong. And then uh, it was there that I started to hear talk of a mysterious new pneumonia in Wuhan in China. And I'd been reading enough science fiction as well as I'd read enough history about the beginnings of pandemics to be very alert 
to that kind of snippet of news because a lot of pandemics, real and fictional, begin with that kind of story. So by the time I got to the World Economic Forum in Davos in Switzerland, I was completely convinced. I knew enough to know there was going to be a pandemic. It was slightly strange because nobody at Davos, with perhaps one or two exceptions, seemed to see this. They, they wanted to talk about climate change. And I was running around the conference hall saying, I know climate change is important, but there's actually a pandemic now. You don't seem to realize there are three people from Wuhan on your list of delegates. And it was an attempt, to, an attempt to persuade people, the kind of people who go to, to Davos, that I started put, pulling information together to try and show people this really was very, very serious and very fast moving. So and this, of course, invites another question. Why in 2019 were you um, thinking so much about histories of the future? What was it in that moment that was making you think apocalyptically? I'm not sure. Maybe being Scottish, I'm just always slightly inclined to think about you know, the, the doomy side of life. But I, I actually had come to an intellectual decision at some point that year, which was that reading history was not enough. As you know, we talked about this often when we were colleagues at Harvard. I'm a great believer in applying history to contemporary problems. I think we really can learn things from history. It's difficult. It's easy to get the wrong idea from trying to learn from history, but it's worth trying. But I'd come to the conclusion after a few years at Stanford that this alone was not enough, because what history is bad at telling you is about the impact of technological discontinuities, uh, because those have become uh, in many ways more frequent in modern history. And that, that makes most of history a poor guide in some ways to the future. So I thought I'll, I'll try to counterbalance my reading of history by going back to science fiction, a genre that I'd abandoned at about the age of 16, in the belief that one shouldn't be unserious and that it was frivolous. But I actually found going back and reading science fiction uh, again, incredibly intellectually stimulating. And I got interested in the fact that the famous works of dystopia, the likes of 1984 by Orwell or Brave New World by Huxley, weren't hadn't been that prescient, actually, about what was coming, whereas there were other writers of science fiction, perhaps less famous and less widely read, who, in fact, had a better handle on the way that things were going to develop. So the idea was to sort of temper my applied history approach with, with an infusion of, of science fiction. And, and that was really what led me to tell my New York editor, I want to write a history of the future. I want to write about imagined dystopias. Because it seems like somebody uh, in all the writers of science fiction is is going to have this right. I mean, in a sense, science fiction is this huge crowdsourcing experiment where you get lots and lots of people, some of them very brilliant, Margaret Atwood in our time or Neil Stevenson, you say, think about, figure out the future. And although, of course, nobody's going to get it right because it's inherently impossible to know the future, there are too many uncertainties. In some ways, it really helped me to have read a lot of uh, the recent work of, of Atwood. I mean, Atwood's great trilogy, Oryx and Crake, is all about a disastrous pandemic. And it's a man-made pandemic. It starts with a disastrous uh, bit of genetic engineering. Uh, and, and I think it was because I'd been reading that kind of thing that my antennae were twitching madly and the first couple of weeks of January. And so then it arrives and you find yourself, you know, tracking this real time uh, disaster as against historical time disasters that you're that you're investigating. And one of the premises of the book, really the central argument, as I understood it, is that there's no 
bright line between natural and man-made disasters. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how you understand the human element in the making of uh, what might be seen as sort of exogenous events? Well, there's obviously a, a lot in the subtitle, The Politics of Catastrophe. The argument of the book is that all disasters are in some sense man or people made. Uh, the, the idea of a purely natural disaster seems intuitively right. After all, uh, an earthquake or a massive volcanic eruption are surely natural disasters, uh, whereas a war is a, is a man-made and usually is men who make wars a disaster. But what I wanted to try and do was to show that that's not quite right. And here, Amartya Sen, our mutual friend, the great Nobel laureate and uh, economist, uh, gave me the clue, because in very famous uh, work uh, years ago now, Sen argued that famines shouldn't be thought of as natural disasters. In fact, famines may start with some crop failure, but the reason there's mass starvation has to do with the failure of market mechanisms and often politics. In a famous essay, Sen argued that you couldn't have a famine in democracy. You could not have had what happened in Mao's China happen uh, in India. And I, it suddenly hit me that if that was true of famines, why not of other disasters? Uh, and it seemed odd to me that nobody had really pursued the argument to its obvious next stage, which is to consider all disasters as at some level the result of human mismanagement. Go back to volcanoes. Uh, if you um, build uh, a city right next to a volcano and, and rebuild it after the volcano's erupted once, th then there's going to be disaster the next time it erupts. Uh, uh, that, that's the sense in which even a volcano has, has a man-made uh, a, a quality to it. A volcanic eruption has a man-made uh, quality to it. If you look at a map of the world and just look at where the cities are located, it's remarkable how many cities we, we build next to major fault lines uh, or massive uh, uh, volcanic caldera. And I mean, I now live quite near one of those fault lines, as, as you know, um, and I'm hoping it, it won't actually suddenly move during this conversation. But that's the, the idea of the book. There isn't really a sort of purely natural disaster unless you count the asteroid hitting the Earth. That hasn't happened for a long time, and it's pretty unlikely to happen in the near-ish future. If, if you look at most of the things that we think of as disasters in history, and to an extent history is one damn disaster after another, they all have this human element. And in a way, COVID-19 is a beautiful illustration of this point. About a year ago, it was widely accepted that this was a kind of natural mutation that had produced uh, the new SARS-CoV-2 virus. And now we find a rising probability that, in fact, this originated not in a so-called wet market, but in a laboratory in, in Wuhan, which makes it look as if possibly COVID-19 was a, a man-made disaster. I, I mean, certainly, even if it was a zoonotic, naturally arising mutation, the way it was mishandled at the beginning by the Chinese regime ensured that it was a much worse disaster than it would have been. And I think if, if one put, puts Amartya Sen's brain to work on our behalf, he would say, if it had happened in a democracy, if, if, if it had been a lab leak in, in a democracy, would, there would not have been weeks and weeks of covering up and hushing up of, of doctors, weeks in which, of course, the virus was able to transport itself to pretty much every continent. 
I also found myself thinking of Sam a lot at the beginning of the pandemic, because it seemed to me exactly that what we were seeing unfolding around us was essentially a kind of, um, you know, real-time political science experiment in what kinds of polities and, uh, you know, what kinds of um, societies were best handled to deal with this. I also was thinking of the line said of the Irish famine at the time that it began, God indeed created the potato blight, but the British created the famine, uh, which anticipates sin. Um, and uh, in your book, you know, one of the things that I did find so striking is a map that you have of all of the, um, the, the most active earthquake zones. And of course, they are, you know, the coastline, basically, of North America on the West, and, you know, everywhere that people have indeed set up, uh, set up shop. Um, now, all that said, I mean, I think, um, it's an ingenious thread and it, and it really works in a lot of ways to hold these sorts of events together. But I, I wanted to press you a little bit more on how you define disaster, because we see a big range of things coming up in the book, everything from the fall of the Roman Empire and the fall of empires to uh, the sinking of the Titanic, which took on cultural significance. But of course, as things go, it was one of, you know, hundreds of shipwrecks. It wasn't a singular disaster, except in as much as it got the headlines. So how do you define disaster? What is it that that um, holds these two very different scales of events together? Well, there's one chapter where I look at what might be called small disasters. Uh, and the Titanic is a small disaster compared with COVID-19, clearly. Most of the book is about excess mortality, events that cause significant excess mortality. And if it didn't do that, I didn't really spend much time on it. I didn't cover massive oil spillages, for example. They kill a lot of wildlife, but relatively few people. So that was the organizing principle. We were looking for periods of abnormal excess uh, mortality. And if, if you look through history, what you find is that a relatively small number of pandemics and wars caused a really huge amount of, of death. Uh, the world wars are kind of up there with, though not quite at the top of the league table with the biggest pandemics. And then you have a lot of different, more localized disasters that still kill uh, really large numbers of people, whether it's extreme wildfires or, or floods, uh, major earthquakes, those sorts of things. It seemed to me that there were certain common features of disaster, whether they appeared natural or man-made. And there came up a moment in the book where I thought, I need to kind of go down to the smaller scale to see if there's, to use a rather pretentious phrase, a fractal geometry of disaster. Here, the idea was that like Tolstoy's happy families, all disasters have certain things in common. And although I'm mainly interested in the big ones, uh, ranging from the big pandemics to the big wars to other big disasters that kill a lot of people. I, I found the chapter that zoomed in on uh, famous disasters in which relatively small numbers of people died, but, but there was a great focus on the significance of the disaster, very helpful, because although the Titanic's really on a much smaller scale than, oh, I don't know, the Battle of the Somme, nevertheless, there are certain common features. And here's why I did this. I was early on in the book trying to think through how to to structure it. Uh, when a former student, another Harvard person, Manny Rincon Cruz, uh, said to me, you really have to read Richard Feynman's book about the space shuttle Challenger disaster in 1986. And I, 
I took his advice, and it was revelatory. Some some people listening may be familiar with the book. Feynman was called in from Caltech. He was a brilliant physicist to be a part of the panel to investigate why the space shuttle Challenger had blown up. Uh, an event that killed only seven people, but was watched by cer certainly half or more of the American population. One of these disasters that sort of sears itself in the popular consciousness. And here was the key to a really important part of the book's argument about the politics of catastrophe. Initially, the White House press corps, the Washington journalists, wanted to find a way to blame it on Reagan, because that's what you do if you're a journalist. And there was an argument that it, the launch had been rushed in order that Reagan could mention it in a State of the Union address. Well, this was untrue. It was, in fact, fake news. Um, there never had been any serious intention to put it in the speech. Feynman established by talking to engineers and just making himself a bit of a nuisance around NASA, that the real points of failure was much further down the chain of command. The engineers knew that there was a 1% chance the thing would blow up because of the famous O-rings, which basically leaked fuel from the launching rockets, especially at low temperatures. But the bureaucrats at NASA turned one in a hundred into one in a hundred thousand because they didn't want to uh, stir up trouble with the principal source of funding for the space shuttle program, namely Congress. And so this, this was the kind of critical epiphany for me, that the disaster that attracted so much attention around the world uh, I remember it uh, from my own uh, youth, uh, was actually the fault of middle management. It wasn't the fault of, of the, the man at the top. And this became a sort of organizing idea for the book. The politics of catastrophe, are, it's often misunderstood that there's a strong inclination to blame whoever's at the top. And we certainly saw that all around the world last year. But in reality, no matter how many mistakes one uh, can count that uh, Donald Trump or Boris Johnson made, the reasons why we had very high excess mortality in the United States really had more to do with failures of the public health bureaucracy, the failure of CDC to ramp up testing at the beginning. And these failures occurred in most Western countries, regardless of whether the leader was a, an incompetent populist or a technocrat. So I come to the conclusion that the politics of catastrophe is often about enigmatic figures in, in middle management making fateful decisions that, that historians aren't necessarily that good at spotting. Uh, it's the same as the great military disasters. The Battle of the Somme is, is easy to pin on Asquith or even more on Hay. But, but in, in reality, the reason that the plan went horribly wrong had a lot more to do with defects of the way that the British military operated in, in 1916. So that's a really important idea. And I, I got quite fascinated by one of Feynman's characters, uh, because there's this great... Um, there's this mysterious figure that um, that crops up in the story, uh, who's the man that nobody can quite get hold of when they're trying to work out why it is that uh, 1% becomes uh, 1 in 100,000. And it's Mr. Kingsbury. Mr. Kingsbury is the official at NASA who will never get, never takes a meeting with the engineers when the engineers are saying this thing can blow up. And I think there's a Mr. Kingsbury in a lot of of disasters. And, and that's, that's, for me, a really interesting and, and slightly contrarian insight into not just this recent disaster, but disaster generally. 
I would venture simply to add that I think there's a there's a culture of catastrophe as well. And I think that, I mean, as I read it, the Titanic would be an event that becomes culturally significant for reasons which uh, have their own sorts of logics. And it would be interesting as a kind of supplement to the work that you're doing on the, the, the role of middle management and so on to think about why certain events jump out in the public mind at the times that they do. I mean, I, and I, I wonder how these relate to each other. And it, it's not about necessarily the body count, that things become historically significant in ways that are really not proportional to, to the body count. And that's why I introduced this strange uh, set of creatures, uh, the gray rhino, uh, the Black Swan, and the Dragon King. Uh, the grey rhino you see coming towards you, it's a disaster like climate change that you spend decades talking about as it approaches. And the Black Swan is something that completely takes you by surprise, that you think you never considered, even if you did, but you forget about it at the moment of crisis. And then the Dragon King is is the disaster that has much greater consequences than the body count would suggest. I mean, the First World War is a disaster, not just because something like 10 million men get killed in conventional warfare. It's a disaster because it has this cascading quality that leads to the Bolshevik Revolution, that leads to the Spanish influenza. And, and I think that's part of the argument. But you're right. There's also a kind of cascade that occurs when a disaster, even if it doesn't kill that many people, seems symbolic. Uh, and that, that, I think, was true of, of the space shuttle Challenger. It was certainly true of, of the Titanic. I mean, there have been ships that have sunk with many, many more losses, and they're forgotten. Uh, and some disasters just don't make it. There's this great plane disaster that I write about that occurred in, in uh, Mallorca, of all places, in the 1970s. Enormous numbers of people killed when 2747s collide, but it sort of just didn't make the cut as, I guess, film-worthy, if one thinks about the way Titanic became a, a renewed source of fascination around the, the movie. But at any event, disasters seem to lodge in our minds when they have some symbolic uh, significance or they resonate with some broader sense of unease we feel. Doom is fascinating, I and mean, that's the real point I make at the beginning of the book. We're fascinated by the idea of catastrophe, especially the ultimate catastrophe, the one that sweeps us all away into extinction. So we are kind of fascinated by disasters. We want to think about them. We want to watch them on, on the screen. But in reality, we don't think about them very clearly. And that's part of what motivated me to write the book, a sense that we were confronting this new disaster last year. And some people were complacent, and some people were in a state of total panic. And the reality is that you kind of need to be somewhere in the middle to cope effectively with a disaster. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of what comes out in this is people's assessment of risk and, and the incredible um, lack of reason that most people seem to evince in their decision making. Um, and so that's, uh, that's manifest in, in the present uh, crisis, among other things. I mean, well, risk is hard to calculate. 9-11 stands out to me as a... a an episode which, of course, exemplifies in certain ways the politics of catastrophe, if you want to think about, you know, lack of security and all the rest of it, but really the culture as well, because of the incredible sort of symbolism uh, that it came to, to have, um, which is indeed what imbued it with the cascading effects in part. You know, as somebody who is working in universities um, 
uh, I'm quite happy right now to think about the um, the malign effects of middle management. Um, but I um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your uh, your your very well framed opposition to the great man theory of history, as you put out in in this book. But I wondered if you could say a little bit about how you. Uh, approach the great man, knocking him off uh, the, the pedestal of greatness in this book, while at the same time being a biographer. You've written a number of biographies, of course, most recently and notably of Henry Kissinger. Um, where do you locate individuals in history when you're writing a biography as opposed to the way you see them in this book? I was much influenced by Tolstoy as a schoolboy. It was really why I became a historian. It was reading War and Peace and the great essay at the end when Tolstoy reflects on the events that he's he's described. And, and the argument of War and Peace is essentially that Napoleon's significance is exaggerated, not only by Napoleon, but by historians. I quote in Doom the key passage which electrified me when I read it. Tolstoy says, it's really not possible to explain the huge upheaval that sent Frenchmen in huge numbers into Russia and caused this great uh, uh, conflagration in terms of Napoleon's intentions. Now, off I went to Oxford thinking I must understand this problem better. Tolstoy asks this question, what is the power that moves nations? But he doesn't really answer it. So I've spent, I guess, the last 40 years trying to find an answer to that question. And the answer seems to be roughly as follows, that ultimately there are moments when individual leadership can matter enormously. Uh, but they are sort of distinct moments that one can identify, pivotal moments. Uh, most of what is going on in the process we call leadership has to do with, and this goes back to an earlier book, uh, The Square and the Tower, networks. Leaders don't really sit on top of great hierarchical structures, org charts, where they just issue commands and the lower orders carry them out. In reality, leadership is about being a, a hub in a network, being a node that has lots and lots of connections. And, and with that uh, connectivity, you can motivate people, persuade them, and, and lead them. Uh, and, and that's how I now think about leadership. It, it's about locating leaders in networks and understanding how those, how those networks function. The, the distorting, I think, perspective, which uh, the modern media uh, adore, is the one that emphasizes always the personality of the person at the top, especially if that personality is uh, dramatic or uh, charismatic or just clownish and amusing. It, it's a great mistake to argue, as James Fallows did last year in an essay for The Atlantic, that the president of the United States is like the pilot of an aircraft and that if the plane crashes, it's, it's probably pilot error. There's just no way being president of the United States is like flying a plane, not even close. In truth, people at the top of complex bureaucracies have, and this is something I, I've learned partly from writing about Kissinger, have surprisingly limited information flow often uh, and are generally confronted with choices after the options have been filtered down to a typically three by the bureaucracy. So this is a very important point of connection between my 35,000 feet work 
books like Doom or The Square and the Tower. And the biography, I mean, I needed to write a book about networks to understand Kissinger and understand his role in American and world politics. And then I think I needed to write a book about disaster, because ultimately, in volume two of Kissinger, I have to write about Vietnam and make sense of of one of the great uh, military disasters and political disasters of modern American history. Now, it does sound a little bit like I'm saying it's a bit of both. It's a, it's a bit of great or wicked men, and it's a bit of uh, the great uh, forces of history. But let's face it, that's the truth about what we do as historians. We're trying to tease out those things over which individual leaders don't have control. Um, and, and then we're trying to identify what exactly their decision-making uh, role was. A good il- illustration of this from Doom is Churchill and the, the Bengal famine which has always been the stick with which Churchill's critics have, have, have beaten him. And it's not been hard to do because Churchill said numerous callous things about, about the Indians and particularly about the leaders of the, the nationalist movement. But if one actually looks closely at what happened, and I discussed this with the marcher and got him to read the relevant parts, it's, it's clear that it wasn't the British prime minister who was the key uh, culprit for what went wrong in Bengal during the war. And that ultimately, although he didn't do it very gracefully, Churchill did the right thing in making sure that supplies were diverted to the area that was affected. So that, that's a good illustration of how I think we should proceed as historians. Churchill mattered a huge amount. I think he probably was, as AJP Taylor said, the savior of his nation. Without Churchill, it's hard to imagine, actually, how Britain would have come through 1940. But 1943 in Bengal doesn't seem to me like something that has a huge amount to do with his decision making, had much more to do with the people closer geographically to the to the disaster. Dare I say that something in what you've just outlined reminds me of my own basic approach to the role of individuals in history, which uh, I, I admit comes from Marx. Men and women make their own histories, but not in conditions of their of their choosing. Um, And there's a constant interplay between the possibilities for individual action um, and the choices that people make. Um, You know, know, Maya, that that I've always been a Marxist, but just on the side of the bourgeoisie. (laughs) Um, Another thing, incidentally, and I won't go down this route, but you are, uh, your other sort of historiographical acts uh, to grind in the book is uh, is against cyclical histories. And, um, and here, um, you know, I, I sort of wonder, um, I suppose I found myself wondering how many people actually do still uh, hold to cyclical histories these days and are taken seriously. But, uh, but perhaps that's a different thing in economics. I'm not sure. Well, you'd be surprised. I mean, one of the best-selling books of history broadly defined is, is this book, The Fourth Turning, which people constantly quote back at me. And then there's Ray Dalio, whose who's latest foray into, uh, into writing history is a resuscitation of a kind of financial cyclical theory. Th- this stuff has it's a little bit like your work on ancestry. I mean, academic historians may disdain it, but it's actually the kind of history that that uh, a wider public consumes. And people really do like the idea of cycles of history because it gives them some sense of order. There's some predictability to this. It's going to be like the seasons or the seven ages of man. 
Uh, and, and we kind of want that because to be told, as I'm afraid the readers of Doom are told, sorry, history is quite chaotic and there's no way of predicting disasters and they're randomly distributed. I mean, that's not a very comforting thought. And the quest to find a cycle of history that will allow you at least to have some predictive power, well, I think will always go on. But I think in Doom, I finally figured out why it's doomed uh, as an enterprise, as an intellectual project. I mean, you just can't have a cyclical theory of history if these random disasters keep butting in, uh, you know, no matter how elegant the theory. And I mean, Peter Turchin's work is really impressive. He's definitely the best uh, of the practitioners of this kind of history. And he's done a great job of gathering data and giving us demographic drivers. Uh, and and I'm, I'm a great fan of his work. But, but I think in the end, you, you can't get away from the fact that however you, you may, uh, far you may get in constructing a, a cycle-based model, that the incidence of disaster will just throw that model off uh, at, at random uh, times and, and in random places. And that seems to me what dooms the enterprise. It strikes me, so to speak, um, it strikes me that uh, in your in your uh, talking just now about cycles that um, uh, your, your, your interest in counterfactual history uh, also comes into play here uh, because that is essentially trying to run the experiments with a different outcome. Um, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about... Um, disasters that don't count. And by this, what I mean, you know, you just were talking about Churchill. Churchill is a man who spent much of a professional career. I mean, he was he was rather old by the time he became prime minister. He had decades of experience before that. And throughout the decades uh, of his career before becoming prime minister, he frequently mobilized exactly the same sort of rhetoric that he would later apply to Hitler to very, very different kinds of situations. You know, he'll talk about the suffragettes as being, you know, the, the evil of, of all time. He'll talk about, you know, Irish, you know, Irish uh, rebels as being, you know, the greatest evil of all time. He'll talk about Gandhi as being the greatest evil of all time. And he'll talk about Hitler as being the greatest evil of all time. With Hitler, he actually got a lot of people to agree with him. Um, but my point in this is to say that there are are obviously lots of people who uh, are wrong nine times out of 10. And then if they're right the 10th time, um, it's that's the time that really sticks. And I'm wondering in your account of disaster, if some of the disasters that are standing out here, in a sense, this goes back to my Titanic question, is uh, is that some of them are the ones that stick. I mean, that is clearly, you know, the, the Spanish flu killed an awful lot of people. But some of these other things, such as, uh, again, the Titanic or the Challenger, these are the ones that kind of rise above the transom. So what about the ones that don't? You allude briefly to the opioid epidemic at the end of the book. Um, one could point to the... Syrian civil war and the migrant crisis that has followed. Do these count as disasters? And if so, how? And if not, why not? Well, certainly the opioid uh, epidemic, because it hasn't been global, it's been national, has been a disaster. And it, it killed uh, uh, over the course of Barack Obama's presidency, as many people as COVID-19 killed in the final year of Trump's presidency. And yet I don't remember ever reading a piece by Jim Fallows blaming uh, Obama for the opioid epidemic. It happened on his watch though, and each year more people died 
the, the administration totally failed to, to deal with the problem. Uh, and I do think it's, it's a reflection of the way our media work, that there was so little criticism of, uh, of the administration that presided over that. Uh, disaster, a disaster that was beginning to uh, ebb and has, of course, uh, deteriorated again last year with a big spike in, in overdoses. I, I guess the, the key here is is how disasters get framed. And you're right that there's, there's a phenomenon of uh, uh, the, the lucky Cassandra. That is to say, if you predict a financial crisis every year, for 10 years, uh, there's not a bad chance that you'll get one. And and then if you get the right media coverage, you are Dr. Doom. And that was Nouriel Roubini's uh, sobriquet at the time of the 2008 financial crisis. I had known Nouriel since going to New York University in 2002. He predicted a financial crisis every single year from 2002 until it finally happened. And then he's continued to predict them every year since. So this is a strategy that can work for you very well. Peter Turchin predicted disaster in uh, 2020 on the basis of a demographic theory of history. He got it because of a, a pandemic, but that's okay. He still has been getting much better media coverage um, uh, as a result. So I think it's partly getting the right coverage if you've been the stopped clock or if you've been the Cassandra that just kept on predicting disaster until you finally struck it, it lucky. Uh, but I think there's another issue here which is slightly harder to grasp. The, Spanish influenza is famous, and, and justly so. It's one of the world's worst pandemics. The Asian flu of 1957-58 is almost forgotten. Uh, and although COVID has now overtaken that in terms of the proportion of the world's population that it's killed, uh, it's only just done so. And if you'd sort of been writing as I was in late uh, 2020, you could have said it's basically the same scale of disaster. It was about 0.04% uh, of the world's population. It's now got, got a bit higher than that. We may indeed end up revising still higher. But it, the Asian flu of 57-58 is, is closer in its impact to COVID than the Spanish influenza. And I read hardly anything about the Asian flu of 1957-58 because it's largely forgotten, uh, even by the people who lived through it. And I, since I've started writing about it, I've kind of jogged memories. People have written to me saying, yes, I do remember that. In fact, I was a child then and I was, I've never been more ill than I was with that, with that influenza. But it's not a historically significant episode. It's not one of those dragon kings. In fact, it barely features in any history that you'll read of the 1950s. Uh, and I, I, I'm thinking a lot about why that is. I think part of the answer has to do with the different attitudes of people in the 1950s. They had been through a lot. They were grappling still with other infectious diseases like polio. The war had only recently stopped. The Korean War had had only just happened. I think the tolerance of excess mortality in the 1950s was much higher. And I found a good example of this since finishing the book. Uh, excess mortality in Britain uh, was as bad in 1951 as in 2020. And who remembers that in 1951, there was a severe influenza outbreak, especially around Liverpool with really, really high mortality. It's just gone. I delved into the British papers and at the time, they were referring it to it as the worst winter in English history. Well, that's journalism, isn't it? I mean, 
it's always the worst disaster, the one that you're covering, because that's what's going to get you the coverage. But only some disasters really turn out to have that kind of lasting, memorable impact that the, the Spanish influenza did, or for that matter, the Black Death. So I think that's part of the reason that, that you can have a really big disaster with lots of people dead. But if it doesn't strike the moment politically, if it doesn't really capture uh, the imaginations of contemporaries, it's remarkable how quickly disasters get forgotten. I mean, let's not forget, this is not our first pandemic. Our generation um, had the AIDS, HIV AIDS pandemic, which killed 32 million people, which is still about 10 times as many people as COVID. And yet I keep being told that this is an unprecedented event that we're experiencing. So I, I, this is part of what motivated me to write the book. We, we, just, we just find it very hard to get the orders of magnitude right, I think. That, that's part of it. Well, and it all, again, as I see it, comes back to the culture of catastrophe and why certain things resonate in the ways they do with the people with whom they do. Uh, obviously, communications technologies are going to be very significant to how things play. Uh, as you say, the generational distance of most people alive now from the last kind of really global cataclysm, which was World War II, all of these things are going to play their role, as I think finally will expectations about health. Uh, you know, we're living in a world in which unhealthiness as measured by, for example, obesity and diabetes is really terrible. Um, and yet uh, in which expectations among people in affluent societies about the kind of life they're going to live are, you know, bear no comparison to that of people, as you say, in the 1950s. So I think all of these are ingredients in, in making sense of, of the rush to the term unprecedented uh, yes. right now. <laughs> Which you and I are allergic to, because we know that when people use the word unprecedented, they just, they're just admitting to ignorance. Most historians ought to be. I think if historians had one thing they could say to journalists, it would be, please remove the word unprecedented from your, from your column. So let me, you know, we're, we're just a few minutes away from questions from the audience, which are starting to come in, and I'd like to shift to those. But let me just ask you, um, one one sort of final line for me, which is, so this book is, of course, an indictment of middle management, as we've already discussed. How about pundits? You know, I remember, I mean, you, you talk already about Davos and people missing the point. And I remember vividly going to a lunch at, uh, at the Belfer Center in Harvard's Kennedy School, which you know well, uh, the very day that, uh, that Harvard announced that all students would be sent home from campus. And everyone going around the room and saying one after another, oh, you know, not a big deal. You know, in the end, it'll just be a flu, nothing really going on. Um, now, obviously, you are full of uh, uh, justifiable contempt for such positions. Um, at the end of the book, though, you do talk a lot about the um, relationship between the U.S. and China and how that may or may not shift out of COVID. This is something about which many people are pontificating. Um, and I wondered if you could just say a little bit about um, where you think uh, pundits are getting it wrong um, and why and what you see uh, coming coming out of this for, for Chimerica, as you call it. Well, Chimerica was uh, that extraordinary symbiotic relationship between the US and China from about 2001 to about 2007, which was when I think I used that word first. We seem to have gone from Chimerica to Cold War II extraordinarily quickly. Uh, I was writing about Cold War II before the pandemic, 
I think the pandemic has really taken us from the foothills of Cold War to some distinctly higher elevations uh, in in lots of ways. And uh, it would be tedious to list them all. But suffice to say, I think we are uh, in much more of a Cold War than most pundits want to acknowledge. Uh, there's certainly a recognition that the US-China relationship has deteriorated. That would be very difficult to deny. Uh, but I was struck by a conference that I attended, uh, organized by Johns Hopkins last year, by how few people wanted to agree with me that it's a Cold War. Even Graham Allison, our colleague at uh, Harvard and uh, a luminary of the Belfast Center, who wrote Destined for War, can't quite bring himself to acknowledge that this is Cold War II as surely as uh, as World War Two was World War One writ large, I think this is going to be very like the first Cold War, and I think most pundits are in denial about that uh, because they're seduced by uh, dubious concepts like coopetition. That is to say, we're going to compete and also cooperate with China on climate. Uh, and I'm constantly told by eminent uh, professors at Stanford as well as at Harvard, oh, this is not like the Cold War because of the great economic uh, interdependence of the US and China. And my response to that is, I can assure you that that will just make the espionage much, much easier for the other side than the first Cold War was. So that's my take. We, we were already in Cold War. And I think as in the first Cold War, American intellectuals don't really want to admit it. There was a real lag, if you look back at the 1940s, between Orwell's first use of the term Cold War, which was, I think, in 1945 and a general acceptance by the American intellectual elite that that was exactly what they were in. So I think that's what's happening. And I end the book with the, the, the geopolitical catastrophe that could happen, because I do think that that's much more imminent than people realize. After all, the thing about Cold War is that it turns hot periodically. It turned very hot in Korea in 1950. And my suspicion is that we're much closer to a clash over Taiwan or perhaps the South China Sea than most people want to admit, uh, because at some level they just they just can't quite imagine it. And when you're sitting around a Belfast Center table, you've uh, you've been to China many times. You have Chinese colleagues. You have many Chinese students. It's just hard to get your head around the idea that in a really short space of time there might be a shooting war between the United States and China. But our friend Jim Stavridis wrote a nice novel recently imagining just such a conflict. And I'm very struck by how the, the military, rather than civilian professors, are thinking a lot about this. And, you know, not every war that the military plans for happens. But I find my historians' antennae tingling about Taiwan just the way they were tingling about those strange cases of pneumonia in Wuhan. And, I, you know, I'm coming to trust those antennae. They're not, they're not too bad. <laughs> well, cockroaches survive nuclear apocalypses, so antennae have their use. Well, I've always thought of myself as an intellectual cockroach, Maya. I was, I was just going to say, though, that, you know, one of, the, um, one of the things that made teaching with you so much fun, and for the audience and the listeners, uh, I should say, Neil and I talked together at Harvard uh, for a couple of years, is that, you know, to your uh, politics and economics take on things, I have my culture and society take on things. And I would say that actually, if you look at uh, U.S. China relations, or shall we say, uh, white Asian relations, um, you would uh, never delude yourself right now into thinking that there was um, anything but uh, a great deal of um, animosity right now. I mean, obviously, the spike in anti-Asian violence is palpable in the Bay Area and uh, and here on the East Coast. And 
and elsewhere. And I think if you look in the cultural realm, there's plenty of reason to be um, to, to support your your vision of a, of a cold war. And this is why I keep saying to people, this is about issues we have with the Chinese Communist Party and its leadership, not issues that we have with Chinese people or people of of Chinese descent. It's an extremely important distinction. And we know from uh, past examples in American history how dangerous it is when those lines get blurred. Absolutely. But we also know from American history that um, that the one leads the other and that the popular uh, animosity on this much more everyday level can end up, you know, these, these two realms are in constant dialogue with one another, I think is, is what I would say. It's a very important issue for this club. Um, I mean, the, the extent to which Chimerica is the the kind of Californian coast is something that I'm really acutely aware of since moving to Stanford. And I have Chinese American friends, that's to say US citizens of Chinese origin who are deeply, deeply worried about the situation. And I, I share their worry. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me move to a few audience questions. Um, so here's one. As we continue to deal with the pandemic, is there another disaster that you are concerned about? You've hinted already a little about the hot war, but I wonder if there might be some some others on your mind. Yes. One of the key points the book makes is that you have to be ready for quite a wide variety of disasters rather than focusing on just one. I think climate change is a huge issue. Don't get me wrong. I think we're actually closer to the worst case scenario than we were when the Paris Accord was signed. And by the way, that is actually mainly because of China, which is responsible for about half the increase in CO2 emissions since Paris. But that is that should not be our sole focus, because there are a bunch of other things that could happen uh, that that we might prove to be just as badly prepared for as as a pandemic. Uh, I've mentioned one one aspect of of the U.S.-China relationship that I think we need to think more about is that any major conflict will be a will will, will feature massive cyber attacks on the United States, and the United States is extraordinarily vulnerable to attacks on its critical infrastructure via the internet. Uh, and if you followed the Colonial Pipeline story, you'll know that even a bunch of East European crooks who might have had some backing from Moscow were able to disable a really large part of the uh, uh, the energy supply lines of the east coast of the United States. Uh, so with with malware. So I, th- I think, or ransomware to be exact. So I think this is probably the kind of disaster that could happen much faster than the things we worry about when we go to conferences about about climate change. I do worry that when an earthquake, a big one strikes uh, California and the West Coast, we'll, we'll, we'll turn out to be just as badly prepared for that as we were for a pandemic. Well, one of the paradoxes which I want to include in this discussion is that on paper, we were very well prepared for a pandemic. We had lots and lots of pandemic preparedness plans. They just didn't work. And I think that might turn out to be true if there is a major earthquake. Uh, on the West Coast. I won't go on any further because I I don't want to depress people. But the key takeaway is disaster comes in many shapes and sizes. And you don't tend to get the disaster that you carefully prepare for. And that's one of history's cruel ironies. Uh, uh, There's a long list of presidents who kind of get the wrong crisis, the one they weren't really elected to deal with. And and, uh, in many ways, Donald Trump was only the latest in the succession. On the issue of cyber threats and hacking, another audience member asks, what can be done to better handle that looming disaster? Well, one of the lessons of my earlier work on networks is that if you build a really, really large 
complex network, which which we've done with the internet, which we've done with the the U.S. economy, which is highly reliant on just-in-time delivery, uh, highly reliant on optimized connections. It's extraordinarily fragile. Uh, and we need to think much more carefully about how to have circuit breakers uh, when something like a malware or ransomware attack occurs. Because the easiest way to disable uh, a, a, an electronically interdependent system is just with, with something that spreads virally through it. Uh, th that's, I think, something that, that we haven't fully digested. What went right in those countries that dealt well with the pandemic last year, like Taiwan and South Korea, was that they just were you, you, able to use circuit breaker techniques to stop the spread. And we failed utterly to do that. So you have to think about it all as, as vulnerable networks that have not been well designed for the eventuality of, uh, of a contagion. The, the case of RSA back in 2011 has only recently been properly understood. This was a, a firm that, that was, in fact, providing secure ID uh, services to many government agencies, and it was hacked by the Chinese in 2011. Uh, and the hackers uh, were able to uh, take just about all the, the crown jewels from that company's security system because there was just no, no way of, once they got in, uh, there were no break walls, there were no circuit breakers to prevent them taking uh, more or less full advantage of access. I think that's the crux of it. Now, we talk a lot about cybersecurity. I'm very skeptical, to be honest, that our cyber defenses are properly designed for that kind of uh, eventuality in which you need to cordon off a vulnerable or attacked part of the system. But, you know, what do I know? I'm just, you know, I'm just a Hoover fellow. Uh, there are people who work on this for a living uh, and they're paid not to talk about it. But it does strike me that we've had some pretty good early warnings uh, of what uh, an attack on critical infrastructure could do. And I don't feel confident that we are ready for it. So not surprisingly, after hearing you um, doom say for the last uh, 45 minutes or so, a number of audience members are um, curious to know how we can do better. Um, so um, so um, to sort of collapse together a couple of questions here, you know, one wants to know if there's a coherent approach to anticipating or mitigating future disasters. And relatedly, um, another audience member asks, the U.S. has spent billions preparing for disasters, preparing in quotes, uh, with fear and threat-based messages and programs. Uh, what can be done to get us to embrace other more effective approaches? I'm so glad that you asked those questions because it allows me to be um, upbeat and not, not a doom monger, because I'm really not a doom monger. They, these are fixable problems. Uh, you know, Mr. Kingsbury, the problem of bureaucracy is fixable. Uh, the things that have become really deep pathologies of, of federal and state government, the, the tendency to produce a 36-page plan and say the job is done because our assets are covered, that tendency is very widespread. And I think it's relatively novel. I don't think the federal government worked like that, certainly in the 50s, and maybe it was beginning to work like that in the 60s. But I know, I know that it doesn't need to be that way. One solution to the problems that is... Uh, one that didn't exist before, is to use technology more intelligently. One of the heroes of my book is Audrey Tang, the transgender minister for technology in Taiwan. And, uh, and Audrey Tang was originally a kind of cyberpunk rebel 
leading an Occupy movement against the Taiwanese government, but got brought inside with the mandate to use technology to make the government more accountable to the citizens. And that's one reason that until this recent outbreak, Taiwan did so well that they have a new culture in which they use technology to empower citizens to, to exchange information. For example, they were able to solve the ma mask shortage problem at the beginning of the pandemic just by using crowdsourcing techniques, being transparent with the public, saying, here's the situation, rather than lying to the public, which is what the American public health officials did to claim that masks didn't actually weren't actually important when they were in short supply, a terrible mistake uh, that sowed the seeds of future doubts about the importance of, of masks. So I think we should be sending people from federal agencies to Taipei to look at the way Audrey Tang's various software platforms work. It's the same uh, uh, story with contact tracing, uh, something that we did abysmally badly in the West, but but in in the end actually worked when finally the National Health Service did it in Britain. It turns out that really worked. It didn't happen until September last year, and it still hasn't really happened in the US outside of maybe Massachusetts. But the Taiwanese and the South Koreans have shown that you, you can deal with the contagion. There are ways of doing it, but you have to be quick on the draw. And this is one of the big takeaways of the book. It is much better to be generally paranoid and jumpy quick to react than it is to be meticulously prepared for the wrong disaster. That, I think, is where, where we currently are. We, we have a culture of ass-covering bureaucracy, very complex regulation, pages and pages and pages of what look like uh, contingency plans. But when the rubber hits the road, when there actually is a crisis, everything slows down to a snail's pace. Perfect illustration of this, Dominic Cummings' account of Britain in 2020. Anybody who was following his testimony last week got an absolutely brilliant insight into the utter paralysis that sets in when a crisis strikes and you have elected politicians, uh, career civil servants and academic experts all sitting around the table failing to decide on what to do. And that, that I think, was happening in most Western countries in some shape or form. Uh, last year. So I think these problems are fixable. But it's, it's time we stop looking at China and saying, oh, gosh, I've seen the future and it works. That is not the future. China's system is so screwed up, it really caused this disaster. We need to look at the Republic of China, look at Taiwan. Um, and I think we can learn a lot from Taiwan and South Korea and how they handled this. Can I just interject on this? I, I've wondered a lot about, and of course, I'm not a political scientist, so what do I know? But I've wondered a lot about the question of scale and diversity of societies, because you're absolutely right about Taiwan and South Korea. There's no question about that. Um, but you look at the United States, you look at Brazil, you look at India, um, and you see, obviously, three massively large and multi-ethnic societies. They all happen to have various analogies in their uh, having had or currently having populist leaders. But Really, you know, my question is, what about the fact that the societies are just massively diverse and have extremely complex histories of trust and lack of trust and authorities and so on? And, you know, is it really um, feasible to imagine that what works in South Korea could work on the same scale and in vastly different demographic configurations? I, I think we've got to be careful of, of a couple of, of, of wrong conclusions. One is. Um, you know, we're just too, you know, too diverse to do these things. Well, except that Britain, which is now a pretty diverse society, 
uh, nailed vaccination uh, uh, procurement and distribution. Uh, and it was also able to make, as I mentioned earlier, contact tracing work eventually after, you know, failing to, to get things right for six months. So I, I think um, it's not quite true that we can't do this stuff. I mean, the US actually has ended up making a huge success of, of a vaccination drive. Uh, that wasn't predictable when I wrote Doom. I mean, I signed off on Doom back in October. And at that point, we didn't even have the phase, phase three results in from Pfizer and Moderna. Turns out we produced the best vaccines in the West, and then we were able to roll them out even faster in the English-speaking West than in continental Europe. So I think there are, there, there are kind of paradoxes about the recent disaster. The countries that were terrible at containing it turned out to be really good at vaccinating against it and vice versa, because right now the Taiwanese are struggling, having failed to vaccinate their people with the new and more transmissible uh, strains of the virus. Uh, That's why I'm very leery of generalizations. Um, And there's another that you could have made, but you're too subtle a historian to do it. But I've heard it from many other people. Well, we are too fond of individual liberty and we don't have their collectivist Confucian outlook. And I'm really, 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 really dismissive of that argument, because if we are so fond of liberty, why did we submit to house arrest en masse in multiple states? I mean, is, is it actually preferable to be locked up in your home than to have a contact tracing app? I mean, I don't understand how that kind of uh, argument works. We submitted to immense limits on our personal liberty compared with the Taiwanese and the South Koreans. So that argument, which again is cultural in nature, seems to me to fall by the wayside. There are ways, I think, we, that we can learn from uh, the, the, the experience of the last year and a half and we can do much, much better what we did badly last year without compromising individual liberty and also without compromising the 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 diversity of of the country which is ultimately its 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 source of strength i mean in the end i'm kind of an optimist about cold war 2 i think the us will in fact come out ahead mainly because i think china's centralization and homogeneity its resistance to diversity exemplified in the policies in Xinjiang, these will prove to be as serious uh, a set of weaknesses as the similar weaknesses of the soviet union so so we have time for just one or two more quick questions, and uh, these ones are uh, a little bit lighter in spirit. Uh, one person wants to know if there's a biography of someone that you're hoping to tackle next, and I should tell the audience that, of course, we all are on tenterhooks for Kissinger Volume 2, so it would have to be after that. No. <laughs> I am I am deeply, deeply immersed in Volume 2 of Kissinger. Glad I wrote The Square in the Tower and Doom as sort of prep for it. Uh, but I can't actually imagine writing another biography after after this one. I think I think at that point my work will be done as a biography. <laughs> um, incidentally, I, I also have to note that your early work in biography was, of course, about networks, the Rothschild. So there's a lot of really uh, connected qualities across all of these genres that you work in. Um, and then another uh, audience member wants to know who your favorite sci-fi author is or what your favorite book is. I think... Uh... It, it was probably one of the sort of uh, seminal moments uh, of my science fiction reading that I discovered this extraordinary book, We. Uh, and it, it, it's, it's a book that actually in many ways uh, anticipates uh, Orwell and, and Huxley. Uh, and uh, 
what uh, uh, we does, it's a, a wonderful Russian book. The author's name will come to me if only I can uh, get my exhausted brain to supply it. Yevgeny uh, Zamyatin, uh, that's it. Yevgeny Zamyatin's we, uh, which was suppressed uh, under the Bolsheviks. He himself was part of the Russian Revolution. But we brilliantly imagines a world in which there is no privacy whatsoever. Everybody is a cipher. They're not, they're, they're not citizens, they're ciphers. They, they have unifs. Everybody wears the same clothes. But best of all, their apartments are made of glass. Uh, and the state controls every aspect of, of life, more completely than in 1984. And I, as I read Zamyatin's We, I remember thinking, oh, my God, he, he, he foresaw the destruction of privacy, which is one of the decisive and disastrous features of our time, not only in China, but in unfortunately, in the West too. So yes, if you haven't read Zamyatin's We, you have a treat in store. He was an astonishing writer, largely forgotten because he was essentially snuffed out by, by Lenin and his cronies. His short stories are also absolutely extraordinary. Uh, so yes, he's my, I think he's one of the truly seminal f figures in the history of science fiction and not nearly widely enough read. Well, thank you very much, Neil, for the book, for the conversation, uh, for the reading suggestions. With that, I'll conclude the program for today with thanks to Neil Ferguson, Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and author of Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. We encourage you to pick up your copy of Neil's book at your local bookstore. And if you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club efforts, please visit www.commonwealthclub.org. I'm Maya Jasanoff. Thank you and take care. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.